Eben Byers is dying. It's 1932, and the 53-year-old son of an iron magnate is wasting away in a bed overlooking the ocean in his palatial Southampton, Long Island mansion. Waves crash against the rocks beneath the balcony of his room, but the only energy he can muster is to shift his eyes across the gorgeous view. His body isn't just failing him. It is literally falling apart. His skin is yellow. He only has six teeth. His entire lower jaw is missing. It literally fell off. His bones are so weak that you could poke a hole right through his skull with your finger. And he weighs no more than 93 pounds. His skin, bones, and even breath are all dangerously radioactive. Friends and family hardly recognize the man, who was once a handsome, athletic, semi-pro golfer with a reputation as a lady killer. And there's nothing his millions of dollars can do to help him. In fact, his vast wealth is the reason he's here. He spent the last five years indulging in an expensive habit of gulping down trendy, radioactive health potions. They were supposed to energize him, relieve his aches and pains, make him more virile. Instead, they ravaged his body and turned his skeleton into Swiss cheese. A few men gather around, hunched over, attempting to extract a testimony from the frail millionaire. They're lawyers representing the Federal Trade Commission, and they need buyers to give a statement as part of an ongoing court case against the maker of Radithor, the miracle energy tonic containing radium, a highly radioactive element found in uranium that buyers drank by the dozen. Typically, house calls for court testimonies aren't allowed, but Byers is too weak to move, and traveling would likely kill him sooner. Eben Byers, millionaire playboy, will soon die and have to be buried in a lead-lined casket to protect mourners. And it's all because of one man, the maker of Radithor, the man the Federal Trade Commission is desperate to pin down. Dr. William Bailey sits in a lavish boardroom. By his side stand countless lawyers of his own. They exhaustively discuss strategy for his and his company's defense, but William Bailey hears none of it. He cares little for these learned men's opinions because he knows the worthlessness of a degree. In fact, degrees are so inconsequential to him, he gave himself an MD a few years back without the inconveniences of medical school or residency. Bailey stares at the newspaper in front of him. On it, a photo looks back at him. A photo of the once extraordinarily polished Eben Byers before his gruesome deterioration. Through the black and white of the print, Byers smirks unflappably to the camera with a golf club in hand, bow tie perfectly straight, and exuding an easy charm earned from not having to work a day in his life. William doesn't blink. He's been facing off men like this his entire life. Privileged, elite, snobs who never gave him the time of day. In fact, it's his disdain for all the Eben Byers in the world that's fueled him into being a massive American success story. He will not let this blue-blooded bozo destroy the empire of radioactive medicines, ointments, and cure-alls he's so painstakingly developed. The empire that brought him from the miseries of poverty to the American upper crust. He clenches his fists and pounds the polished mahogany table, startling his bespectacled attorneys. He's ready to finish the job that his Radithor has already started and destroy Eben Byers. But who is this William Bailey 
Why did he shift his career as a small-time swindler, scamming people out of petty cash, to literally poisoning them with irradiated water? And how was he able to get away with it for so long? We're going to explore the tragic world of radiation therapy in the early 1900s, the bizarre and exploitative cottage industry of miracle cures that sprung up around radiation, and the man who built an empire out of bottling and selling the most deadly substance on Earth. But before all that, all you need to know is there's a fire inside William Bailey, and it burns with a red-hot, radioactive intensity. History happened. The good, bad, the ugly. This is the underside of history. The lesser-known pieces lost in the bigger picture of time. From the creators of myths and legends and from cast media, this is Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join us every episode as we explore the dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. William J.A. Bailey is born in Boston, Massachusetts on May 25th, 1884. Soon after, his father dies, leaving his mother to raise nine children on a $15 a week salary. From his earliest days, William is a quick study. And his most influential teacher? Urban poverty. It teaches him the earliest lesson he'll keep in his back pocket his entire life. The world is cruel, and survival is by no means a God-given right. It's something that must be earned, fought for. And the good news for William, he's a fighter. 1880s Boston sees some seismic changes. The Industrial Revolution, started in Lowell, Massachusetts, is in full swing. And William watches as commerce is generated by the millions all around him. He dreams maybe, just maybe, a struggling kid like him could one day share in the profit and be like the Boston Brahmin who inhabit the mansions of Beacon Hill. For most Boston kids at the time, this dream is nothing short of impossible. Growing up in a slum with a single mother and eight brothers and sisters all but secures a life stuck in the vicious vacuum of poverty. But William is different. He's smart. Yeah, wicked smart. Sorry, I had to. Anyway, William leans into his innate intellectual savviness and impressive test-taking skills to get accepted into the Boston Latin School. The differences in wealth between himself and his classmates is noticeable. But William has tunnel vision. He will succeed. And he does. It's 1902, and an 18-year-old William Bailey finds himself accepted into the same institution normally reserved for the Boston elite and former American presidents, Harvard College. As William begins matriculating, he finds himself rubbing elbows with the children of families he's only read about in the newspaper. Rumor has it that even the current president, Theodore Roosevelt's cousin, is currently enrolled. Living down Plimpton Street at Adams House, a six-foot-two blonde kid named Franklin. Not bad for a poor kid from Boston, William thinks to himself. At Harvard, William will have no past, a blank slate. He's finally part of the A-team, the upper crust, the winners. Well, not quite. Despite getting accepted into Harvard... Bailey quickly faces the harsh reality of being a kid in poverty, trying to make it through an Ivy League education. He has trouble paying for housing, food, and books, things his wealthy classmates take for granted. The stress of trying to stay afloat gets to Bailey, and his grades end up being less than perfect. After only three semesters, he's forced to drop out on account of mounting debt and slipping grades. 
It's 1903, as William drags his suitcases, walking on Harvard Yard, and Shane, a final time as a student. A group of boys walk by. They're dressed to the nines, in their finest elite turn-of-the-century fashion. They might be members of the Porcelain Club, perhaps the most exclusive, wealthiest finals club the college has to offer. Their blood bluer than the spring New England sky above. William hears one of them snicker as they pass by. The snicker might have been a coincidence, William thinks. Maybe it was something another boy said that was funny about an unrelated topic. Or maybe it wasn't a coincidence. Maybe it was that overprivileged, silver spoon-sucking snob laughing at the sight of another peasant who never even belonged here in the first place, making his way off their hollow ground and back to the gutters. William does his best to slow down his apoplectic breathing. This isn't the end, he vows. This is only the beginning of his rise to the top, by any means necessary. That's right. You'd think that grasping and then immediately losing a lifelong dream would be enough to kill the fighting spirit in any person, but not William Bailey. After his defeat at Harvard, Bailey develops a new goal, and quite a lofty one at that. He hopes to one day become the U.S. trade ambassador to China, and he's going to do it without a college degree, or at least a real one that he actually earned. Having temporarily mingled with the elite at Harvard, Bailey knows he's just as intelligent as anyone, and he's going to show them. Bailey spends the next few years trying to self-actualize his new dream into existence. He has zero political experience, but he does have some knowledge of the business world from his time at Harvard and an overabundance of unwarranted confidence. So he just starts making things happen. Bailey scrapes together what money he does have and gets the heck out of Dodge. Transporting himself by steerage, he's miraculously able to travel the globe, leading up to World War I, trying to establish himself and make waves. He's able to make his way all the way to Russia and finds himself spending time drilling for oil. However, similar to his Harvard aspirations, Billy's political career fizzles out when his ambitions are outpaced by his inability to remain financially stable. He returns to the States with his tail between his legs, settling down in New York City. Looks like China isn't getting a new U.S. trade ambassador anytime soon. So what's a red-blooded American boy to do when he's chock full of a vague feeling of being destined for greatness, but seems to fail at everything he does? Let the free market decide, of course. William Bailey goes into the business of starting businesses. Bailey, now in his late 20s and hungry to be the entrepreneur he knows he can be, founds many startup companies. They're all based on various harebrained schemes Bailey cooks up. They all mostly consist of scamming gullible customers unlucky enough to stumble across one of the various ads Bailey has put in the local papers across the greater New York area. Does William have a problem ripping people off? Maybe to his surprise? No, he doesn't. He doesn't feel anything. William's got no time to psychoanalyze himself. He's got money to make. Most of William's companies don't last longer than a few years, but a few of them actually wind up being profitable, and Bailey slowly builds seed money for some future empire. An empire of what? Well, he hasn't actually thought that far out. He's just riding that huckster wave, seeing where it goes. Then, inevitably, one of his schemes gets him into some legal hot water. 
It's 1912, and a warrant is out for a 28-year-old Bailey's arrest. Why? Because one of his companies, Carnegie Engineering Corporation, clearly named to give the impression that it's somehow affiliated with the mega-rich steel magnate Andrew Carnegie, has put out an ad in the local paper. It promises customers that if they send in a $50 deposit, they'll be able to purchase a newly manufactured car for only $600, a total steal. Bailey receives over 1,500 orders through this newspaper ad, approximately $75,000 or $2 million in today's money. The only problem, as the New Jersey authorities discover, is that there are no cars. Carnegie Engineering Corporation is not a real car manufacturer. The company's factory, where the $600 wonder cars are supposedly being manufactured, is nothing but an abandoned sawmill. Bailey is in trouble. In court, he tries to plead that he was unaware of the company's fraudulent nature. He owns multiple companies and couldn't possibly keep track of all of them. This defense doesn't work, and Bailey is fined and sentenced to 30 days in jail in May of 1915. When Bailey gets out of jail, he's right back at it. Yep, some measly 30-day sentence isn't going to deter him from achieving his goals, being better than everyone else, and grasping the greatness owed to him by the universe. As a result, in 1918, Bailey, now 34, gets in legal trouble again. This time for hawking a phony impotence cure called Lazigo for superb manhood. Yup, products that promote enhanced male virility existed before they packed your spam folder. He is quickly arrested for false advertising, presumably after the local police chief learns the hard way, or more likely the not-so-hard way, that the product doesn't work. Instead, it's revealed that Lazigo is just bottled strychnine, aka that highly toxic poison used in animal pesticides. This is just the beginning of Bailey's straight-up poisoning people in the name of turning a profit. Poison? I mean, it's one thing to swindle by selling faulty products that don't work. But using active ingredients that are known to cause harm? William Bailey just doesn't care. Were these people there to help him when he needed help? Were they there to give charity to his single mother with nine mouths to feed when he would cry himself to sleep through hunger pains? Were they there to give him tuition money before he had to shamefully leave Harvard? Nobody ever cared for William Bailey. Why should he care about anybody else? Always adapting, Bailey learns one important lesson from this ordeal. You can't just sell poison as if it's medicine and expect to get away with it. You have to at least give the impression of legitimacy. So he does two things. One, he delves into the highly unregulated world of mild radiation therapy, an industry that is so underexplored that basically anything goes without fear of arrest. And two, he crafts a new persona for himself, one where he actually did graduate from Harvard and then go on to get his doctorate from the University of Vienna. He is now Dr. William Bailey, radiation therapy expert. Now, before we get into Bailey's dalliance into the world of radiation therapy, let's give a very quick, non-boring history lesson of all things radiation up to this point. December 1895, German physics professor W.C. Ronken is tinkering around in his lab studying cathode rays when he discovers a new invisible ray that can pass through solid objects unlike anything the world has observed before. He calls it an X-ray because, you know, it sounds cool. The discovery rocks the scientific community. Less than a year later, in May of 1896, French scientist Henri Bacquel 
fascinated by phosphorescence, discovered a rather bizarre phenomenon himself. After leaving a rock of uranium on top of a photograph for two days, he concludes it's actually emitting its own rays independent of the sun. He discovers radiation. Followed this by physicist Pierre and Marie Curie discovering radium, an explosion of radioactive excitement thrills not only the scientific world by the early 1900s, but the business world as well. Radioactive elements are quickly used in hundreds of products, such as paint that can be applied to numbers on a clock to make them glow in the dark. Tons of companies even start to produce and sell miracle ailment cures and magical tonics that can supposedly cure all kinds of diseases using this magical substance. While everyone is still bullish on radioactive medicine, companies run advertisements in newspapers shilling their irradiated products and pay off doctors to give endorsements and even prescribe the products to their patients. One of the first doctor's endorsements of radium water is published in the British Medical Journal in 1911. Among many other claims, it says that the so-called tonic lowers blood pressure, improves digestion, and even increases sexual vitality. It goes on to say that it can cure diseases such as diabetes, glycosuria, gout, rheumatism, and arthritis, among other things. There's just one problem with this. It is all a total lie. The products are literally just deadly radioactive substances with zero health benefits. In fact, by the late 1920s, a series of lawsuits pop up against U.S. clock manufacturers. The companies have been using glow-in-the-dark radium paint to illuminate the numbers on their clocks for years. The clock painters, mostly women, unknowingly exposed themselves to the deadly substances, swallowing it after licking their paintbrushes to sharpen their points, and even painting their teeth and fingernails with the radioactive substance to prank friends. Now, these women, dubbed the Radium Girls, are developing horrific diseases. Their skin is turning yellow, their bones are becoming brittle and literally falling apart. They're dying in droves. The companies avoid liability by insisting on the harmless nature of radium in small amounts, and the whole thing is swept under the rug. Fast forward to 1920s America. William Bailey has been arrested multiple times for his fraudulent, even dangerous schemes, shilling faulty, harmful products. It's not known when he first learned of radioactivity and its application to phony medicines. But this discovery is a massive eureka for him regardless of the growing rumblings of its dangerous side effects. At this point, the newly proclaimed Dr. William Bailey needs to act, and he needs to act fast to capitalize on it. The year is 1924, and now 40-year-old Dr. Bailey stands on stage in front of a listless, sweaty crowd of impatient medical experts. He's bespectacled, top-hatted, and patched in all the right places, mainly the elbows, looking the part he's crafted for himself. The crowd chatter gets louder and more irate as Bailey walks center stage for the presentation. Who is this guy? What is radiation therapy? What makes him an expert in it? Nobody knows. In one of his most impressive feats of flimflamery, Bailey has somehow talked himself into being a speaker at the American Chemical Society Conference on Medicinal Products in Washington, D.C. And he's billed as the foremost expert on all things related to radiation, despite having zero expertise on the subject. How did he accomplish this? Well, that's just between Bailey and the Crows. But you wouldn't know it. 
Bailey clears his throat and launches into a routine that's equally Thomas Edison and Carnival Barker. The crowd's chatter silent, and the dubious chemists and practitioners are suddenly transfixed as Bailey professes the medical marvel that is radium, how it is the cure to all diseases, reversing aging and putting the balance of life and death inside the hands of men. Throughout his life, Bailey has been the butt of jokes and the object of ridicule, all because of his social status. He was told he'd never go to Harvard, and when he did, he was looked down upon by his peers, forced to drop out in shame, laughed at by the same Ivy League hoity-toities who now stand in this room, glued to every single word he has to say. He doesn't have the money. He doesn't have the connections. He doesn't even have the degree. And yet, here he is, rending greatness out of the ether with his bare hands, unstoppable on his path to becoming the most respected and richest name in the medical field. This is his moment. He no longer has to scam poor old ladies out of $50 checks with phony car schemes to scrape by anymore. The world is his, and these highly educated know-it-alls are his new marks. Who's laughing now? The most surprising part about Bailey's special appearance at the 1924 American Chemical Society Conference is just how new he is to the industry. Just a few years prior, somewhere around 1921, Bailey became obsessed with the research of Pierre and Marie Curie, and he even produced his own English translation of Marie Curie's 1910 book, Trait de Radioactivity. He becomes fascinated with the transformative effects of radioactive materials and wants to apply them to his less-than-legit medical products in a big way. By 1923, he incorporated Associated Radium Chemists, Inc. in New York City and started producing a line of patents for radioactive medicines such as cough syrup, a flu cure, and a weight loss serum. Imagine somebody today learning about gene splicing on Friday, pounding a couple YouTube tutorials over the weekend, and launching a company that starts messing around with people's DNA sequences on Monday morning. That is essentially what Bailey does in the early 20s. Unsatisfied with putting all his body annihilating quack medicine eggs in one basket, Bailey quickly incorporates two additional radiation therapy companies. There's the Thorone Company, a firm that produces thorium-based cures for glandular problems. And then there's the American Endocrine Laboratory, producer of the Radio Endocrinator, a radium-infused harness that can be worn around the neck to rejuvenate the thyroid, around the torso to irradiate the ovaries, or under the scrotum in a special jock strap to, well... Let's just say that Bailey really thinks that radium can help men in the bedroom, and this is not the last time it will come up. By the mid-20s, however, despite appearing at the chemist convention and gaining a lot of respect in the industry, the law inevitably beats down Bailey's door. He's forced to shut down Associated Radium Chemists, Inc. on accusations of false advertising. Well, that didn't work. So what does he do when his shady, poison-shilling companies won't fly in NYC? He moves across the river to New Jersey, of course. In 1925, Bailey moves to East Orange, New Jersey, and founds Bailey Radium Laboratories. The company develops a product called Radithor, a cure-all miracle elixir that is meant to combat any disease, ailment, ache, or pain. In reality, it's just powdered radium purchased wholesale from the nearby American Radium Laboratory, dissolved in distilled water, 
pumped into tiny glass vials, and sold to customers at a 500% markup. From there, Bailey launches an aggressive marketing campaign for Radithor. He ships promotional pamphlets to every registered physician in the country, touting the transformative effects of the tonic and offering a 17% kickback to doctors on their orders, creating an enticing incentive for them to start scrawling their indecipherable chicken scratch across those prescription pads. Doctors start ordering Radithor by the case and begin throwing it at patients for any little medical issue they're having. And because of the 500% markup on sales, Bailey becomes a very rich man nearly overnight. This is it. The big one. His breakthrough. A successful business model that not only leaves him filthy, stinking rich, but also with a lot of clout in the medical community at large. He's like a 1930s Elon Musk, except instead of producing energy-efficient transportation, he's pumping out literal liquid cancer. It kind of puts that weird rich people tunnel Musk built in Las Vegas into perspective. Between 1925 and 1930, Bailey Radium Laboratories moves more than 400,000 bottles of Radithor. But it's a few of those bottles in particular that will cause a lot of trouble and ultimately be the downfall of Dr. William J.A. Bailey. They're the bottles he sells to one Ebenezer Byers. Despite Bailey's meteoric success in 1925, the year also foreshadows the beginning of the end for mild radiation therapy. The radium girls were easily and tragically ignored because they were poor, working-class women in the 1920s. Then, in 1925, a string of male chemists at the U.S. Radium Corporation die of a mysterious cocktail of kidney failure and bone deterioration. People take more notice this time. And though the radium girls were swept under the rug, many health experts point out that their symptoms were nearly identical to those of the U.S. Radiation Corporation victims. Evidence is mounting that, contrary to popular belief, prolonged exposure to radium and other radioactive materials might not have miracle curative properties. In fact, it might be devastatingly terminal. It's Dr. William Bailey himself who tamps down these accusations. During a 1925 New York Times feature piece about the deaths, Bailey, now 41, is quoted as saying that there is no proven link between radium exposure and deadly symptoms. And he should know, he's a doctor. The Food and Drug Association tries to issue warnings about the potentially deadly effects of radium, but their warnings for businesses to stop selling the substance were met with a shrug and an, uh, make me? Oh, you can't? Cool. The 1920s era FDA doesn't wield the same regulatory power as it will one day have, and Bailey's authority on the situation wins out in the end. Radium-based cure-all products continue to be sold like very deadly hotcakes in the US. In a fatal example of someone not being able to see the forest for the trees for their own ambitions, Bailey has amassed enough power and respect within the industry, something he's sought ever since that day he had to drop out of Harvard in shame, that he's able to single-handedly control the narrative surrounding the deadly nature of radium. He doesn't stop to think for a second about the pain, suffering, and death his words are unleashing upon the world. But all of that collective suffering is perfectly symbolized in the tragic life of Eben Byers. Ebenezer McBurney Byers is a wealthy socialite and son of Alexander Byers, a successful iron and steel magnate. The family is massively famous in Pennsylvania for having one of the largest art collections in the world, their Rust Belt royalty. 
Throughout his teen and college years, Ebenezer, or Eben, is known as a dashing, charismatic lady killer who also happens to be a good golfer, winning a championship in 1906. His combination of chiseled good looks, affinity for golf, and even-tempered attitude wins him the nickname Foxy Grandpa among his friends. But that is about as deep as Foxy Grandpa goes. He has no particular business acumen, which presents a problem when his dad passes away and young Eben inherits the entire Iron Empire by default. See, Eben has a few older siblings that would be better fit to run the company, but they all die young, except for his sister, who's skipped over because she's a woman. Did we mention that there's rampant sexism during this time? Eben and his younger brother, Jay Frederick, become president and vice president of the A.M. Byers Company in Pittsburgh, and they basically run it to the ground. You see, Eben doesn't want to run an iron empire. He wants to party. The young Byers also develops a reputation as a notorious booze hound and a frolicker during his college years, and this follows him well into middle age. In 1927, Eben is 47 years old, still running his father's company and hating every second of it. To blow off steam from his long and stressful weeks as a robber baron, he parties with his college buddies on the weekends. And during one of these extravaganzas, he takes a train up to see the annual Yale-Harvard football game. On the train ride home, he celebrates Yale's victory in a big way by getting completely blackout drunk. Stories are conflicting about what happens next, but Eben either falls and injures his arm during a vigorous dance competition, or he passes out in his bunk after said dance competition and is flung to the floor onto his arm when the train makes an emergency abrupt stop. We're honestly not sure which is more embarrassing, so we'll just let you pick. Either way, his arm is permanently injured. He complains about constant pain. Worst of all, it affects his golf score. Something needs to be done. He goes to every doctor in town begging for some kind of relief. They prescribe him all of the Roaring Twenties heavy hitters, opium, cocaine, the works, but nothing helps. That's when he visits Pittsburgh physician C.C. Moyer, who's got exactly what he needs, Radithor. As an added bonus, Moyer tells him, Radithor will also give him renewed energy and also make him more virile in the bedroom. Two things Eben is highly self-conscious about as he heads into his 50s. Eben becomes addicted to the stuff, purchasing and consuming multiple vials of it per day. He even hands it out to his friends, employees, and racehorses he owns, like it's candy. He becomes one of the richest, most powerful, and influential hype men for Radithor in the world. He's the rich, golf-playing Flavor Flav to William Bailey's Chuck D. Except they're fighting the power of the FDA. But also like if that giant clock necklace Flavor Flav wears was so heavy, it made his jaw fall off. By the early 1930s, Eben Byers has consumed over 1,400 bottles of Radithor. And while he initially reports feeling energized and refreshed, likely a placebo effect, by this time he notices that the special feeling Radithor gives him is starting to wear off. He goes to his doctor complaining of aches and pains. He says he's completely lost that toned-up feeling. And his doctor is stumped. Eben is losing weight fast and experiencing daily headaches and toothaches that can't be soothed by any other medication. He never once considers that perhaps the substance that Eben is guzzling by the truckload that is linked to several horrific deaths might be causing the symptoms. He diagnoses him instead with sinusitis and sends him home. 
Then, Eben's teeth start falling out. He shells over more money to fly in Joseph Steiner, a radiologist from New York City. Steiner examines Bayer's bones and notices the same types of lesions found on the radium girls and the U.S. Radium Corporation chemists who had died. Frederick B. Flynn, an actual expert in the field of radium, is brought in and confirms that Eben's entire body is decomposing from radium intoxication brought on by drinking radithor. Dr. William Bailey gets wind of this opinion and launches a smear campaign against Steiner and Flynn, labeling them both as scam artists. He releases statements from his personal physician attesting to Bailey's own clean bill of health. You see, Bailey is getting high on his own supply and drinks several bottles of Radithor a day himself. Flynn's, remember the actual qualified radium expert, his opinion about Eben's condition is not released publicly as a direct result. But something's different this time. Ever since Bailey broke out of his social class and rose to a place of power and authority, the world has been his oyster. He has enough clout and charisma to talk his way out of any problem. People listen to him, and the problems go away. Not now, though. Bailey's propaganda campaign against Flynn and Steiner temporarily settles the dust around Eben Byers, but only briefly. That is because of one fatal error Bailey makes. No matter how rich or powerful you are, there's always someone out there who's more rich and more powerful. And Eben Byers? Bailey's most famous victim is that man. Once the high-profile case of Eben Byer starts to make its way around town, there's no getting Genie back into the bottle, as the popular saying goes, or the bottles of highly irradiated water back into the hands of rich guys who need help in the bedroom, as the less popular saying goes. People start paying attention to the connections between Byer's tragic health regression and the radium-infused drinks he's consuming. They start listening to the FDA's warnings that they've been screaming from the rooftops since way back when the radium girls started dying. And most importantly, the government is now paying attention. The Federal Trade Commission has actually already opened up an investigation on Bailey in 1928. Not necessarily because they were overly concerned about the connection between radium and these deaths, but simply because Bailey was blatantly a corporate criminal of the highest order. By 1930, when Eben Byer's tragic story starts making waves in the news, the FTC escalates the investigation and files a complaint charging Bailey with falsely advertising the harmlessness of Radithor. The case goes to trial. So here he is again, a 46-year-old Dr. William Bailey, or just William Bailey. As the authorities quickly dismantle his lie about having earned a doctorate, he's up on the stand passionately extolling the miraculous benefits of his wonder cure radium elixir. He still performs in front of a crowd of the types of men who mocked and ridiculed him at Harvard. But this time, he no longer confidently wraps them around his finger. They're not watching transfixed by the magic of his words. They're peering with accusatory eyes. Chairs squeak in the uncomfortable silences between his nervous blasts of testimony. He's not selling them on his vision as he did at the chemist's conference back in 1924. He's in court, desperately trying to convince them not to send him away forever. He's back in the same position he found himself as a younger kid, struggling to move up to the next rung of social standing, performing for his life and future at the whim of men he feels he's better than. He's smarter, faster, better, and more ambitious. He's sure of it. He spent his life wanting to be rich and powerful. 
Then he realized that the only way to accomplish this was by exploiting and victimizing the same affluent men he longed to be. And it worked. For a while. As he performs the song and dance in front of the courtroom, he realizes he's been hoisted by his own petard. He became rich and powerful, victimizing the rich and powerful. And now he himself was his own final victim. Well, second to last. Eben Byers is still hanging on. In fact, he's agreed to testify in the trial, but he's too weak to make the trip. So FTC employees and lawyers agree to travel to his seaside mansion to get his testimony. The supervising attorney for the trip, Robert H. Wynn, later describes interviewing Byers in his ghoulish condition, tucked away into the palatial estate by saying, quote, a more gruesome experience in a more gorgeous setting would be hard to imagine. He's undergone multiple jaw surgeries, the entire lower jaw completely removed. The skin all over his body is disintegrating. He's mentally alert, but unable to speak, a prisoner of his own decaying form. As Bailey hears of the grisly condition of Byers from the discomfort of his defendant's chair, he doesn't gasp. He doesn't recoil like the rest of the courtroom. He's silent, still, motionless. He feels nothing. Why should he? He rationalizes. Eben Byers isn't a victim. He's been given everything. He won the birth lottery when he was born into the lap of luxury. Just another blue-blooded wasp whose only hardship in life was what fine scotch he would wash down his caviar with. As the lawyers droll on about his mutilated appearance, Bailey is transported from the cold wooden furniture of the courtroom. A 19-year-old William is back at Harvard Yard, doing his final walk of shame out of the protection of the ivy walls he thought would make him invulnerable forever. He sees the group of hoity-toity frat boys fresh out of their final club. They look to sneer at the shabbily dressed William, bidding him a final adieu back to the slums of Boston. Suddenly, William sees that they all have the same face. It's Eben Byers. They all laugh at William. Suddenly, though, the laughter stops. They all clutch their jaws in pain as their faces turn a yellow hue. Their bones begin to break limb from limb. They scream in panicked pain. William smirks and heads off the yard. He's the winner, not them. The fantasy finally dissipates with a gavel drop. Once the men finish their gruesome testimony of Byer's condition, Bailey doesn't stand a chance against what they witnessed. It's the final nail in the coffin for Bailey Radium Laboratories, Inc. and Radithor. On December 19, 1931, Bailey is ordered to, quote, cease and desist from various representations theretofore made by them as to the therapeutic value of Radithor and from representing that the product Radithor is harmless. He doesn't contest the order and shuts down all of his mild radiation therapy ventures. Shortly after, in early 1932, Eben Byers succumbs to the radiation poisoning and dies. At the time of his death, he only weighs 93 pounds. The very high profile and horrific death of Eben Byers, a famous socialite, causes renewed scrutiny into the use of radioactive materials for medical purposes. The FDA uses the case study to campaign for more sweeping control of consumable regulation in the country, and the government gives it to them. The distribution and production of medicine is completely revamped in the country, resulting in the tightly regulated world of pharmaceuticals we see today. Scientists slowly learn more about the harmful effects of radiation on the human body. 
It's discovered that radium is mistaken for calcium by our immune systems and accidentally integrated into our bone structures where it sits indefinitely, punching microscopic holes in our tissue until our bodies just fall apart. The mild radiation therapy industry collapses overnight. William J.A. Bailey is never actually charged in the death of Eben Byers or any of his illicit radiation schemes, despite likely causing hundreds, if not thousands, of deaths and serious health complications over the next few decades to previous Radithor users. He attempts to start up a few more companies hawking radioactive health cures, but continues running afoul of the increasingly stricter FDA rules. Though he should definitely face repercussions for his actions, he suffers a fate potentially worse for him personally, fading into obscurity. He never does anything of note again. He likely dwindles all of his personal fortune on legal fees over the next few years, and at the end of his life, he winds up the way he came into it, impoverished and unremarkable. There's, of course, nothing wrong with either of these things. But for William Bailey, there's a small chance he would have traded places with Eben Byers. Instead, he dies in 1949, at the age of 65 from bladder cancer. To his last day, he insists that Radithor was not responsible for Byers' death. He uses it himself as a living example of someone who drank Radithor daily for just as long as Eben and never experienced any of the same symptoms. It's discovered years later by scientists that some people just simply have a stronger tolerance to radiation, and Bailey was one of them. It's during times of extreme economic and societal upheaval, like the Great Depression, that we truly see the perverse effects that the American dream can have on us. We're taught from a young age to strive for greatness at any cost, and to step on heads in the process, to understand that life isn't fair, and that to the victor go the spoils. It's the perfect infernal machine that normalizes cruelty and abuse, because it's just the cost of making it in the world. At its most harmless, it just makes people act like inconsiderate jerks when they're trying to get something they want sometimes. But when thrown into the desperate conditions of something like the Depression, it can turn deadly. It fixates ambitious people on a valued end goal and makes them blind to how their actions might affect others. It's a thought-terminating argument that makes the ends justify any means. William Bailey is a prime example of the American dream run amok. On paper, his humble beginnings and ambitious striving for greatness are perfectly understandable, admirable even, but he serves as a cautionary tale in our increasingly individualistic society that life isn't about what you accomplish, it's about how you leave it when you're gone. So next time you're about to try a newfangled supplement promising to perform miracles on your strength, endurance, your stamina, and overall well-being, just be careful. Look into it. Do your homework. Think of all the William Baileys of the world willing to make a quick buck off of you with untested science and hazardous science. Better yet, think of all the poor Eben Byers who trusted them. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Andrew Price. It's produced by DJ Lubell and edited and sound designed by Anton Doty. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast. <laughs>